Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Tawara Ye Sodawantaba Munchantu Satang. So this is the last evening of the uh, this retreat. And uh, tomorrow we scatter, go back to our homes or to other places. So this is the way it is. <laughs> Coming together uh, and then separating their their pair. So something simple like this to always keep in mind. It's just reminding yourself of. Uh, on this condition level, meeting and separating, coming together and going apart. These are, this is the way conditioned phenomena operates. Inhalation, exhalation, day and night and so forth. So this is, this, you know, using this as a reflection over my monastic life. So applying it just to to being aware of you know wanting and not wanting um, birth and then death as a result of birth coming together means that eventually we'll separate. So in the monastic life we start, we have a reflection uh, that we have all that is mine, beloved and pleasing will become otherwise, will become separated from me. <clears throat> when I first heard this, oh, that's pretty depressing. <laughs> uh, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Because I see my, my attitude was all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, I will keep forever. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the way it is. That's the way one might want it, but that's not the way it is. So these are uh, constant reminders of the way it is. The Dhamma. So during this retreat, this, uh, this is, uh, you know, this marvelous weather and wonderful place good food, everything. Uh, this is probably as good as you'll ever get. <laughs> <clears throat> but you see, you can still suffer here. <laughs> so, uh, but also it, it is, uh, you know, we feel grateful for having such a place and opportunity and even grateful to the devas that control the weather because 
This is just the kind of weather that I ask for. <laughs> and they don't always give me what I ask for. <clears throat> So this way of reflecting, uh, in, like in uh, living in, in England for so long, uh, people are, they, 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 they always complain about the weather in England. <laughs> so it didn't take me long to, you know, when I was still in London the first few months, you know, this, it's a kind of cultural thing. Uh, so even when the weather is good, you complain about it. <laughs> so I decided I wasn't going to complain. And then, uh, you know, I just watched the tendency, you know, to, to do that. Uh, and um, so during 31 years, I, I hardly complain about the weather. In fact, because I don't complain about it, I like the English weather. <laughs> I like the change of seasons. I mean, it, because it's, it, I don't create suffering around it. And I don't wish it were otherwise. So, in, in my own experience there, I've been very happy. You know, it's been a very nice place to live and in terms of... Uh, you know, the society and the interest in Dhamma and all the rest, it's, you know, it's been quite a um, positive experience. So this is just to see how, how, we, how we perceive ourselves and how we, you know, our own habits, like the complaining mind is, uh, you know, when you spend four years in the military, uh, in, uh, in the, you know, you you complain all the time. And I was four years in the navy, and and uh, after four years, I was conditioned seasoned complainer. <laughs> and so they call it bitching. And so you, you you know wherever you are, whatever's happening, you you bitch about it, and, and you grumble and you blame. And so uh, it wasn't particularly my, my tendency before I went in the Navy, but four years of continuous grumbling and complaining, it, it kind of began to stick. And, uh, <laughs> and so this why I began to notice this, how this, this complaining mind, grumbling, uh, criticizing, uh, and then in, in monastic life, you know, when you well, started meditating and then you see, uh, you know, it's very clear in the, in the uh, Four Noble Truths, wanting something you don't have and not wanting to, the things to be the way they are. <clears throat> so in this way, I didn't particularly, you know, uh, as a human being, I, didn't predict, I don't particularly like uh, to consider myself a, whinger or complainer or a blamer, you know, always blaming my suffering or unhappiness on somebody else or on the conditions around, on the weather, on the government, on the society. 
So I, I you know, made special interest in, in this. Uh, you know, not, you know, to just watch this tendency. So in, in uh, living in the UK, you know, you could see the tendency to complain. And then this, then since this is a, a national pastime, you, you know, it's easy to, to go along with it if you already have a tendency in that direction. But, um, so in living in London, for example, people, you know, when you lived in the forests uh, and you get, you, you like living in, in, the, in the country, in the forest, and then you find yourself in this huge metropolis, London. And then, uh, and then we had this, we had this vihara in, uh, it's a rather nice part of London, northwest London in Hampstead. So, you know, it was the nicer part of London. Actually, Hampstead Heath is one of the really beautiful uh, parks, and uh, we were close to that. So, and still, you know, I found the other monks complaining endlessly about living in London, about living in a busy city. We lived on a main street, complain about that. Uh, it, right across from the Hampstead Vihara was the Hampstead Arms, which was a pub. <laughs> so we called ourselves the Hampstead Alms, and they were the Hampstead Arms. <laughs> a kind of complimentary team. So sometimes the, the Hampstead Arms would have, you know, they'd weekend or that summertime they'd have rock bands and <laughs> play terrible rock music that would disturb our meta practice. <laughs> so I mean, this is this is a way to see the absurdity of you know, shut up! I'm practicing meta. Is, <laughs> How ridiculous that we can we can be in in our taking ourselves seriously and in how we see meditation practice. So in uh, living on uh, in this Hampstead Vihara, you know I. I it wasn't a place of choice, but it was what was offered. And so in monastic life, we, when we become samanas, uh, that means we're alms mendicants. We depend on alms. That's why we call it the Hampstead Alms. <laughs> and, this is, and so this is uh, alms, we, which means that uh, if you dependent on alms, then complaining is not really, you know, if you have, uh, I mean, because this is a choice you make, you don't, nobody held a gun to my head and forced me to become an alms mendicant. It was my personal choice. So, so because of that, then you reflect on what they call the four requisites. For, uh, that the Buddha allowed in this tradition. So a, sh a shelter for the night, uh, a roll, uh, something to cover your body, uh, 
uh, and uh, food, uh, like uh, alms food is, you know, they're given an alms bowl, so whatever people put in that alms bowl. And then uh, medicine for illness is the fourth. So there's four requisites. Now, the, the medicine for illness is, is a bit shocking when you realize it, that this is based, that all of these four alms are based on the lowest possible standard, not on high standard. So, so like Bindabat food is, is not, you're not asking for special diets or even vegetarian or anything or, you know, expensive cuts of meat or anything like that. <laughs> you just, you're supposed to go and what people offer you, you take. And so that, you know, it doesn't mean you, you just go to uh, places where you know they, they're good cooks. <laughs> in Thailand, you, you go in about in the villages and some of them are very poor. So you get, uh, you know, people's food that is, you know, is not particularly delicious. Or oftentimes you receive things you would never eat in, you know, in your own society. But then there's a reflection on, on alms food. People offering, people are always offering the best they have. I've never seen somebody offer me, you know, the worst food they have. It's always, you know, even if it's humble or it's not to my liking, it's still, you feel they're offering what the best that they have. Because that's, that's what people are. They, they want to give you, they don't want to give you uh, the worst thing. And so, in my life as an alms mendicant, you know, we find, like here at, uh, at Spirit Rock, the food is excellent. You know, it's delicious and wholesome and organic and vegetarian. And, and uh, so then we, this is the food that we're offered. But then we can think, I want this all the time. You know, I've got to have only pure organic vegetarian uh, food, uh, and then we are aware of that, you know, we become aware of our own, you know, desires for certain things. And it's not that we, it's wrong, but we, we're using the standard of what food is offered and dropped into the alms bowl, so that we can see the discontentment or the way we, we might uh, be averse or or the emotional reaction to the food we get if we don't like it. Or if we like it, then we want, uh, you know, we, we may think, I've got to have this all the time. So we can be aware of that, of our discontent. You can't, you know, make yourself content as a willful act. Um, you know, so, but you can understand discontentment is like this. So. This, uh, these four requisites are very skillful means in recognizing discontentment. And then uh, in robes, it's always the rag, rag robes. So the, in the time of the Buddha, probably cloth was very special because they had to, you know, they, had, they couldn't manufacture it. And so it's not like today where there's a plethora, there's an abundance of of cloth everywhere, but uh, I'm sure I'm assume that it wasn't so easy to get in 
ancient India. But so the idea was uh, to get uh, pick up the rags, the cloth thrown away, the cloth that they wrap corpses in in charnel grounds, things like that that nobody wanted, and then we can gather this cloth and uh, make rag ro robes out of this cloth, sewing the pieces together. So if you notice our robes are all, they're, they're like they're patched. They're not really. <laughs> <laughs> because we don't have to do that, because people are always offering very nice textiles to us. So this brings us gratitude, you know, sense of, of uh, because our life is based on the goodness of others, kindness of others, thoughtfulness of others, rather than on my own wishes and ideals. And so then this, uh, also in uh, a shelter for the night, like here we've had the, they've given me a very nice room in the Metta house. And, you know, so this is, you know, is shelter for the night, and reflect on that, so that it's not something, you know, that I can see any attachment I might form around it. It helps reflect that. It doesn't mean I never attach to any place, but I'm, because of this reflectiveness of the requisites, I can begin to be aware of, a, you know, attaching of, of thinking, uh, of holding on, or uh, possessive attitudes towards kutis or places that one lives in. Just to see that, to, to you know, we're not trying to, if you're living in a nice place, and you say, I have to give it up because I'm too attached, that's another sakyaditi problem. Mm -hmm. It's just to recognize, you say, the, then life changes and flows and moves and we, and we find ourselves adaptable to the existing conditions. Then the medicine is based on fermented cow's urine. And I've never had to, to use that. <laughs> so, so there's always some, something better than that offered. So this is... Uh, and this creates this sense of gratitude and contentment. Now, gratitude and contentment are states of mind that are very conducive to enlightenment, to seeing things, towards mindfulness and understanding. So in uh, monastic training, the training is all leading toward this contentment and gratitude. So, and but when we're when we aren't have no gratitude and we're discontented, you know it's very difficult. I mean, the, you, you, one's always caught in desires, wanting something better, and uh, complaining, and uh, not you know being caught up in in what you would like and. And then, then not being grateful for what is, what you have, for what's on offer, what is given freely. And this society here is not based on contentment and gratitude. It's not based on rights and demands and 
endless, you know, I've got to have this and I want that and I'm not. It's full of uh, self sakya ditti uh, encouragement to never be content and make endless demands for something better than what you have. So this is this is uh, modern life, modern free market economies and advertising. Isn't it? It's all about you know to stimulate desire and make you discontent with what you have. So this is as lay people to, to, you know, when you see the monastic sangha sitting here, it's a reminder of, of you know, of this, this, uh, how to, you know, not that, not to let it intimidate. You think you have to become monks or nuns, but it also is a, you know, uh, an example of this kind of practice. Of alms mendicancy, and then the then this then this contentment and gratitude is a joyful place to be because it you know you you really I've, after all these years as a as a monk I am incredibly grateful for everything because since I became a monk you know. Uh, uh, people have been inc- so generous and uh, in every way and it's say in Thailand or in England or wherever I go there's this uh, generosity the four requisites have never been you know I've never had to resort to the lowest standard I've lived in even very poor areas of Thailand you know where the poverty areas, but people still, you know, you feel this gratitude because you, the village people are, you know, incre- very, very generous with what they have. <clears throat> and they find, you know, they, they seem to be, it's not intimidating them into giving us things. They, you feel that they have this joy in offering. So we're not kind of exploiting the poverty-stricken peasants and and browbeating them into giving us things, but it's it's like it, they they, uh, they they it brings joy into their lives because the, this this is not about like communism, where which is an ideal where we we kind of enforce it. You know, everybody's got to have the same everything uh, through a willful forceful intimidation acts of violence but through you know this uh, so that that kind of communism it ends up as a tyranny where nobody nobody's very happy or content where in the, in this way we you know we're developing beautiful qualities uh, gratitude contentment joy come from the, the consciousness when when there there when we have developed these these virtuous qualities and you can't as you said before you can't do it through sakyaditi but through reflection on discontentment on lack of gratitude on your you know the sakyaditi that always wants or complains or blames or uh, condemns 
is like this. So it is a totally different take on, you know, on life than, say, the worldly life, which is success, attainment, achievement, getting better and better, always demanding things and, and trying to improve and, and um, then blaming when you don't get what you want, complaining because you don't get enough of what you're expecting. And, and so the, you know, no matter how generous a, uh, a government might be, it's still not enough. It's still something to complain about. <clears throat> so n notice, in, you know, this uh, grumbling, uh, complaining, discontentment, uh, lack of gratitude, to see it in terms of, you know, and it's not, not in terms of you shouldn't have these, these feelings, but uh, this is like to begin to observe this. Be the knower of these conditions rather than the owner of them or becoming this complaining person. So it's humbling because in order to fulfill this, we, we, we do have to let go of a lot of, of uh, very strong and very dear attachments. But it's not like that letting go is a, is a, is a suppression, but it's a recognizing the suffering caused through clinging, attachment, and sakyaditi silabhatabharamasa vichikicca. So during this, this uh, retreat, you know, I've emphasized, you've heard me say these words over and over again. I suppose when first, uh, you know, last week, they all sounded very strange. Now they're probably, you know, hopefully they aren't so strange. So, uh, you know, you can, like Sakya Ditti is, uh, is, is, what's that, the ego? Uh, personality view, but it's, it's, it's saying me and mine, what I think, what I want, because this is how I hear, hear it inside myself. You know, I can hear this thing, now if you want my opinion, <laughs> and if you want to know what I think about this, and what I, you know, what I want and approve of, and uh, what I like, and this is a these are my robes, not yours. <laughs> and my life, and my practice, and on and on like that. So, you know, listening to this, uh, the, way, the way my inner uh, voice talks about me, 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 what about me and mine? And, and, and then this, if you want my opinion, I think, you know, say my opinion as if it was so important. <laughs> you know, I'm giving you something so wise and so valuable. If you want my opinion, then usually it's a sakyaditi problem. So, so this, uh, and, and, and so they're like studying and listening to this personality. And then I've encouraged you to really uh, 
you know, that this personality is created. Because there, there have been a lot of questions about the subjectivity, subject-object relationship, because it, you see that for most human beings, they don't know the difference. Uh, uh, consciousness and Sakyaditi are so bound together. You know, so, so that Sakyaditi and the consciousness are just kind of, you know, stuck together. So you're always experiencing everything through uh, like and dislike and the sense of me and mine. So in, in this, when we talk about reflection, or sati sampachanya, you know, where this is a way of, of beginning to discern the difference between consciousness is the knowing of sakyaditi. So then you have to contemplate how to, you know, sakyaditi is not, uh, you know, something that is permanent uh, or ongoing, it's, it's, uh, it's an acquired habit. You know, it's due to language and attachment to, to memory. We have retentive memories. We remember, you know, things, the extreme things usually that happen in our life. Success and failure. So, you know, we, uh, the memory is, when we attach to memory, happy memories, we become happy. When we attach to miserable memories, we become miserable. And so this uh, attachment, this clinging, this upadana, is another word to use. Upadana is like clinging or attachment. Is, uh, is, is, is uh, you know, the way we, it means identity. Uh, becoming the, these, uh, the, this person, this like, this dislike, this discontentment, this ingratitude, this complainer. So then, in, in so then we then the thing is with with sakyaditi is you can criticize yourself for having sakyaditi. You see, so you. You, because then you make an idea, I shouldn't have, I should be free from clinging and pride and I should be humble and, and I shouldn't be selfish. And still that's Sakyaditi. Even though it's true, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be selfish and proud and conceited and all the rest. But you see, it's still language, isn't it? And the sense of you know, I am something I shouldn't be. I shouldn't have uh, selfish feelings, or I shouldn't complain about anything, or I shouldn't, uh, I should always feel gratitude for, for the four requisites. I should always be uh, open and kind and, and totally giving and generous and compassionate. I shouldn't be uh, self-centered and vain and conceited. And so then we, we, you know, we can, then we, we criticize ourselves when we have a selfish thought or a vain thought. You know, oh, there I go again, you know, my, I'm so proud or I'm so vain and, and that's still Sakyaditi. So in order to, you can't get out of this habit through 
anal analysis or thinking because that's you just go around with it you get you know you start complaining about yourself so you you know the thing is to whatever way you are you know whatever kind of character or habit tendencies you have it's not a matter of criticizing them or you know saying that they're good or bad or how they you would like to be but being the knowing, the observer of thinking, of memory, of uh, the personality that you're experiencing now. So that's what I've been emphasizing over and over again, this first fetter, because, you know, this is really uh, uh, the way out of that is not through trying to get rid of pride and conceit and that, but by understanding how it, the causes of it. And that's through, not through self, uh, self views, but through uh, recognizing the value of awareness in which there's this, there's consciousness because you don't create that, and, but you can be aware of, uh, you know, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. It's like this. And it's not, uh, and to emphasize the difference between discerning and criticism. The critical mind is the thinking mind. It'll always, and it's, so its nature is to say what's right and wrong, good and bad. The discerning is non-judgmental. It knows this is the way it is. The conditions are like this. Sakya ditti, the sense of me and mine is like this. It's not saying it's bad or that you shouldn't have this thought or feeling, it's just noticing, it's discerning. Conditioned phenomena is like this, anicca dukkanata. You see, so more and more you, you're, you're finding that this, this consciousness, this state of being a human individual, means that you actually, you know, this consciousness, you're experiencing it from this point, you know, which is, you know, that your body, and, and then you're experiencing universal consciousness from this mortal condition, this, this body. So then, uh, so then your relationship to conditioned phenomena is, is discerning it, so that you're not, uh, uh, you know, creating delusions around what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch about memory or thought or any of the rest. You're, you're, you're able to function in a better way because you're not uh, distorting consciousness through ignorance. You're actually enlightening consciousness. Consciousness is light. So you, you know, it's, it's, it's beginning to recognize this light, inner light, consciousness, and the, and the kind of uh, dramas that, that uh, are seen through this. So you, you can discern the difference between consciousness and self-personality. Now I know you can do this, because I can do it. And if I can do it, I'm sure you could do it even better. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just to, you know, don't, don't 
project onto me that I'm some kind of Superman or anything, but it's, it's just because I've devoted so many years to this investigation that, you know, you have breakthroughs where you actually, you know, the certainty comes out of it. You know this is true, and it's not because I, of Sakyaditi, I'm trying to convince myself uh, that what, what I think and feel is, is right, but it, it, because it, that sense of uh, me being anything at all is seen from this awareness discerned. Now, the, one of the problems in this is somebody uh, talking to this afternoon about the, you know, that there's a lot of things that, that we don't like about ourselves. You know, habits and thoughts and and that's it. I mean, you know, as, as critical as we can be of others, we're usually even more so about ourselves. So this critical function of thinking goes inward, you know, because you, you just, this, uh, you know, things you don't like and you don't want to know and you don't want to see. And, and maybe you spend your life so far just, you know, can't be bothered with that rejecting uh, and it becomes uh, automatic. You know, as soon as this, this starts entering consciousness, you just, you, you, it's not even intentional anymore, it's just habitual. So that's where, you know, the, the meta practice enabled, you know, to invite in what you don't like and don't want. You know, suddenly, uh, you're willing to experience foolishness or stupidity or dullness or, or selfishness or conceit. You know, if you, if you like to think you're a humble person, uh, then you, know, you want to be humble. Then when you start thinking vain and conceited thoughts, you, you just shudder and you reject it. But, you know, if you... Why the men be totally vain, but listen to it? Yeah, uh, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the most beautiful of all? <laughs> and the mirror says, Ajahn Sumato is. <laughs> uh, but it's a game, isn't it? It's really funny when you put it into that, you know, rather than thinking a good monk, an old man like me, I have no right to be vain anymore. You know, what do I care what I look like? And <laughs> but, and, you know, because ideally, you, you know, that's true. But, I mean, it's not like, it, one, it's still Sakyaditi, you know, idealizing monasticism and, and, and wanting to, to not be vain or conceited. I could talk about how you know, the problem of, I'm humbler than you are. Uh, kind of Uriah, uh, Uriah Heep. You know, I'm more humble than, than anyone else in this room. Uh, the thing unique about me is that I'm the most humble person in the whole world. <laughs> and it's, you know, this is, this is uh, making fun of it, but it, sometimes our pretensions are that absurd. You know, we... We, we find aversion to, to conceit and arrogance and vanity in others. 
And then when we see it in ourselves, we just, you know, we, we reject it and feel guilty about it. But no, you know, really explore it, you know, so that you know what being conceited, thinking you're better than everyone else, or humbler than everyone else, or that you're, you know, or, you know, th just listen. So, so you begin to see uh, the, the humor in it, too. It's that funny, you know, if, you, if you're willing to, to, to play around with it. So you can be arrogant and, and uh, nasty and prejudiced and vain and stupid and all that, but your aim is not towards judgment or identity, but towards the clearing, this, this sense of sacredities like this. So a kind of uh, altruistic sakyaditi is, is wanting to be perfect and then hating yourself for everything that doesn't fit into that category, which is most of your life. <laughs> so, I mean, we can be terrible tyrants of ourselves, you know, relentless critics and and, uh, you know, condemners and, and nags, you know, nagging ourselves. There you go again, saying that stupid thing. There you, you did it again. And you, you know, you see this, this inner nag. There you, you did it again. <laughs> so making it play, you know, by making it conscious, I'm, my relationship to it is, Knowing and, and listening, not judging. But by, in this way, I found then I can actually, you know, the, the, the clarity and the precision of the difference between conscious awareness and Sakya Ditti. It it's, uh, it, it's so obviously clear that there's, there's no doubt about it. And living in, uh, you know, over the past 45 years or so, I've lived abroad, you know, so coming from West Coast United States, living in Malaysia and then in Thailand, lived in India and in England. So these are, you know, different cultural conditionings, you know, so so then it does bring mirror your own cultural assumptions. You know, like living in, in Thailand, being a um, Buddhist monk in a very conservative place like Northeast Thailand with a very strict uh, form of Buddhism, you know, the, where the meditation practice, the Vinaya, is, is, is respected. Now I'm from the West Coast of the United States, and, and the, you know, I lived in Berkeley the last few years before I left, and which is, heat, well, you know, probably still is, hedonistic. And it's all about no boundaries, freedom to say and do what you want. So in, in back in the early 60s, it was experience everything. You know, don't let morality get in your way. Just go out and whatever desire arises, follow it. You know, they're quoting uh, that prophet, you know, 
let your desire take you for wherever it takes you. <laughs> so it's justified, you know, doing anything you felt like following every impulse. Which, when you're young, can be quite exciting, you know, break out of the moral rigidity of Christian, you know, the very dualistic Christianity, and given the, you know, the freedom to, to experiment, try everything, enjoy, have a good time, life is a banquet. <laughs> and so only the suckers are starving. That was another theme of that time. Life is just a banquet, enjoy it. And so this is, uh, you know, that, that because I was young then, it was kind of thrilling to, to be hedonistic and and that then, you know, so I had a good time, but the result was uh, increasing self-aversion. Because I became increasingly more confused. I had no, <clears throat> nothing to bump up against. It was, and then the, the Sakya Ditti was, you know, the, the inner critic, because my, my superego was formed with uh, a very dualistic form of Christianity, it was, you know, very, it would bring a lot of criticism and guilt. And so the, that, uh, you know, I felt, began to just feel, hate myself. Because I, I was having a good time in terms of you know, doing everything I felt like and following every impulse, but I lost self-respect because I, you know, I was being in doing things I didn't really approve of. I was, you know, you know, with you, you just when you follow impulses without any guidelines, then you end up doing all kinds of things you don't like or don't want to do in the name of freedom and and experiment and find out. So this led to, to uh, you know, lack of self-respect, guilt, and, and you know, I remember one morning waking up, I had lived in this, this apartment in Berkeley, and the, uh, the kitchen had these row of windows that looked out over the back garden. And so I was looking out, making breakfast out of the, these wi windows looking into the back garden, and there I saw a dog in the garden. And I looked at that dog and I thought, I wish I were that dog. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the dog was even more fortunate than I. And I thought, this is really, you know, something wrong here. <laughs> but the, so this is the result of, of having no restraint, following every impulse, being free to, to do and say and live however you want. So then going from that into uh, this extreme opposite, a Thai forest monastery, where everything is, you know, you can't do this, can't do that. <laughs> and so, uh, but I, in a way, I knew that I needed that kind of I needed to learn how to live within, you know, how to have boundaries for behavior that I didn't, were not my creation. 
it wasn't me deciding my boundaries, but a convention, like, a, like the Vinaya for, uh, that the Buddha established. How to live within that convention. And because uh, I did sense, I had insight the first year when I was a Samanera, that this is exactly what I needed to learn. How to conform, how to surrender to limitation that wasn't just following my own wishes or my ideas. So, so then I deliberately chose uh, Lung Po Cha and because I knew that this is, you know, he was very strict with this, this kind of training. Now the result of that training uh, over the first five years was very profound because uh, it wasn't easy because, you know, I didn't. I don't like restraint and, you know, I, you know when you followed he- hedonistic tendencies, you feel frustrated and angry and rebellious. But because of the way Lung Po Cha taught, I was able to be aware of this, of how how conceited, you know, uh, uh, about the Vinaya rules. I used to think, these are really stupid, these rules. You know, uh, they're, you know, out of date, they're kind of pointless, and, and then I think these monks are just hung up on the rules, you know, and I get critical of the monks, and I start doubting Ajahn Chah's wisdom. But in, through this, I was looking at this, my own, you know, view and, and aversion or rebelliousness. So when I think of the year, early years with Lung Po Cha, this was, you know, this, this really helped me because the first couple of years I really couldn't understand what he was talking about because of the language. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he couldn't have good Dharma conversations. But he did, you know, his teaching was simple and to the point and it was you know, getting me to look at my unhappiness, my discontentment, rebelliousness, conceit. Because as an American, you know, you, and I always like to think of myself uh, from my American conditioning as not conceited. <laughs> and, you know, not arrogant. I don't, I don't, I've never liked arrogance in others. And so I, you know, always, They'll never be arrogant. And yet in, in, in my reaction to living within the Vinaya in Northeast Thailand with Ajahn Chah, so I began to see some arrogance from you know, the American attitudes of somehow what we have here is better than what anyone else has. And then how, you know, I start you know, seeing how they would do things. I say, well, in America, we would do it, you know. And you're talking about uh, from this, uh, we're bigger, better, we're freer, more advanced, more civilized, more this, more that. And I began to see this this kind of arrogance that I didn't know. What I mean, it was partly cultural, and it was also reflected in the fact that I was living in a totally different very different culture, in an agrarian culture. I'd never lived in, in an agrarian society, never lived with farming people, with peasants. 
he always lived in cities, big cities. So I mean, my my experience of life was was from from that kind of Christian dualism, from idealism, and from American values, which you know, which were instilled, you know, in through in various kinds of ways from childhood on up to the present. So this was, this was uh, reflected by living in a different culture. And so this was, because of this reflectiveness I, and uh, Lung Po Cha's skillfulness, I began to see this, you know, recognize this. And then, then it became apparent, you know, I thought, no, I'm just going to do it their way. I'm not going to spend my time saying, well, in America we do it better, why don't you do it the American way? Because, you know, it, I realized that their way of doing it was, was good enough. And it actually seemed to work, you know? It wasn't, it wasn't that they, they had any, were inferior in any way, it's just that, you know, they did it in a different way than, than I would. So then you, you know, by observing, by reflecting on your reactions to, to the cultural attitudes and the limitations and assumptions of a different culture, you begin to see what being American is, or a Westerner. Then living in England, you even get clear view of the difference between a Brit and an American. <laughs> Because you know it's easy to think we speak the same language, and but you know we don't really, <laughs> and we and and uh, attitudes and assumptions are very different in in England than in on West Coast America. And it, it's not about one's better than the other, but it, this reflectiveness because it, we can get behind our. Uh, Sila Patabaramasa. Now this is a mouthful, Sila Patabaramasa. Uh, but that is the second fetter, uh, and it means uh, attachment to conventions. So when we talk about conventions, it's, it's, all, it's form conditioned, like cultural conditioning, or conventional habits. You know, things you pick up from uh, from being born into this particular society, this family, this, cult this culture. And the conventions and attitudes and assumptions and ideals of, of this particular culture that, that's influencing your early, early life, your childhood is like this. So that means to see, uh, see I get that Awareness of sila Bhattabharamasa is to is this mindfulness. It's not judging. It's not saying one is better, or you can, you know. Well, you start thinking Thai culture is better, as you get a feeling for the Thai way, and and you begin. And Thailand's a very pleasant country to live in. So, and you start criticizing America by comparing it to Thailand. And that's still Sakyaditi. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's like you're, 
it's not about criticism, but discerning. <clears throat> and so a lot of like Silapata Baramasa or clinging to conventions is, is, you know, is attitude on assumptions that we have that are from cultural influences. And you, you, you start noticing they're like this. And, and attitudes towards race or uh, men and women or um, politics or whatever is like this. And because in, in uh, like in England, you've got all our monasteries are very international. You know, you don't have just European, you have Asians and then you have, and then you have from Australia and from States and all over the place. And then from Russia and Italy and all those European countries. And, and in England, they don't like to, you know, don't say that Britain is a part of Europe when you go. <laughs> they don't like to feel that they belong to Europe, even though they do. <laughs> but uh, this, is, this is cultural, isn't it? This is, this is a cultural uh, feeling that I don't have. You know, I didn't feel glad to belong to Europe. I don't have that same attitude about European, the European continent that the English have because it wasn't a part of my cultural conditioning. So in this way of awareness, you know, it's discerning, it's observing, and, 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 and so we observe these feelings and assumptions and prejudices and attitudes are like this. And then through that, then we, when we have metta for all of them, so this, this embracing acceptance, let them be what they are. And then you're, you're actually observing their presence and then their absence, because they, they are in nicha dukkanata every time. And in doing that, then you're, you're not making karmic connections to them anymore. You're not reinforcing cultural habits or prejudices or assumptions, you're, you know, you're, you're actually able to, to resolve karmic tendencies, habits, through awareness. Not through trying to get rid of anything, but through understanding. And in the Third fetter, uh, Wichikicha, is uh, is a uh, is funny sound, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like I said, somebody's like when you pet the cat, you go Wichikicha, Wichikicha. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> so somebody found that hilarious, Wichikicha, but it uh, but it means doubt. And so this is, this is, uh, this is the third pattern and doubt, being uncertain. Notice how much you don't like to be uncertain. You want certitude. And that's why people join cults and, and, and believe in, in confident gurus and, 
and want to have things every told. You want to be told, this is right and that's wrong. You do this, but you don't do that. And this is good and that's evil. And you say, yes, 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 now I know. Uh, because there's a kind of certainty in that. You know that people long for certainty because this state of not knowing, doubting, is so uncomfortable. Not knowing what to do, who, not knowing who you are, not knowing where you belong. Uh, people suffer terribly over not knowing where they fit in, where they belong, who they are, what they should do with their lives, what's right and what's wrong, what will happen when we die, where do we go when we die, and so forth. So then you say, well, you know, you give them when you go, when you die, uh, if you've been good, you go to heaven, and if you've been bad, you go to hell. Well, there's a kind of certainty in that, you, you know, heaven or hell. And then, you know, I don't know how, you know, I've done some bad things. <laughs> so, but you don't know, do you? You, you know, I, I haven't died yet, so I don't know. At this moment, sitting here and say, Arjun Sumedha, what happens when, what'll happen to you when you die? I don't know. I don't know what, you know, physical death. And, and I don't know, you know, I've not experienced physical death. But in, in the meditation, I've, I've noticed the cessation of conditions in my, in consciousness. So, and that, when, when you let things go and let conditions cease. That's peace, peaceful. But just, so, you know, the body, in the, more and more you have this sense the body is not self. It's just, a, it's, it is what it is, and it was born and will die. And that death is the opposite of birth, not of life. So we, 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 it's a matter of life and death. And, and we think death is the end of life. Is it really though? I'm just playing with the words right now. But in the English language, we, we say life, it's a matter of life and death. So in that way of thinking, isn't it? Death is the end of life, which is annihilation. And you know, if, if the end of life then that, that, to me, that sounds like, you know, annihilating life. Life is, is uh, the result, you know, it, that death is, it takes us all. It eats us all up and, we, and there's nothing afterward. Or then you can create an imaginary rebirth, possible rebirth or something else different realms, or heaven and hell, or then there's also possibility of oblivion. There's nothing. It's just, you're dead, you're dead, and that's blank, nothing, black hole. Uh, in a way, that, that's, that's not so bad. Because <laughs> you would be nothing to know it, you know. <laughs> so, 
So then, you know why people find oblivion so so appalling? I think oh, quite nice actually. <laughs> but uh, in t- because <laughs> there'd be nothing left to know anything. So you just you know whether you're black hole or not, who'd know what was happening? <laughs> but in uh, now in uh, but this this way of exploring, investigating experience is your you're really, like when I say the gate to the deathless is open. This word deathless is an interesting word. Amara, Ajahn Amaro, Amara, or Amaravati. Uh, You know, what is it? And then then I say, what is it now, the deathless now? Not not, not just some uh, metaphysical abstract concept that you believe in. But everything about Dhamma is about here and now. So you always bring it to the present. What is, what is the deathless here and now? Now this is an inquiring question. But I can't tell you. You know, I said it's not. But as you explore this question, you, you recognize that this awareness more and more you, you, you understand what, you, you recognize the value of awareness as the gate to the deathless. Because anything else is created in some way or another. Happiness, suffering, heaven, hell. Uh, doubt is, uh, will I go to heaven? Will I go, what happens when I die? All this leads to don't know. Well then, tell me, Ajahn Sumedho, and I'll believe anything you say. <laughs> though you're willing to believe, but even though you believe what I say, you still don't know. You just believe what Ajahn Sumedho says. And that might give you a kind of illusory certainty that you find company. But then it's always possible to start doubting again when you I mean, you think, well, I don't know if he really knows or not. <laughs> I met this other guru who said, Ajahn Sumedho doesn't know anything from <laughs> And he told me some things about Ajahn Sumedho that I, you know, I'm beginning to doubt whether he, he can be my guru from now on, because, you know, disappointing, then you have to find Look for another guru uh, that will give you that certainty again. So people, you know, they, or they just become cynical and angry. But if you're really developing this reflection, this, you know, you're, you know, you're, it's, it's honest. It's, it's, it's. Uh, you're not trying to convince or believe or defend, but to understand. And this is through this investigation by looking into, not through preconceptions about how things are, but through direct awareness. So like awareness, sati sampachanya satipanya, is is this this is, you know, this has must be the deathless, this point of attentiveness. Because once I start thinking, thinking is all about death. 
begins and ends. And it takes you to doubt. Never quite. And then when you doubt, then you ask for certainty from someone else. Tell me what's right. Tell me what's wrong. And, and I'll do what you say. Which gives you, you know, you, uh, uh, this illusory sense of certainty. Because doubt can be very, you know, frightening for us. And so uh, this point of awareness is like not knowing. The Korean master that teaches don't know mind. It has mantra, don't know mind. <laughs> and uh, that's a good one. Because don't know, don't know. It's, uh, it's like, you know, because we want to know. And that not knowing is like this. What happens when you die, don't know is like this. Because then the, the thinking actually stops. And this feeling of doubt, insecurity is like this. So you're, so you're, you're observing this feeling of not being sure, not knowing, insecurity. is like this. And that knowing, you find your, the deathless reality in in awareness, not in believing in in, uh, condi- in in any ideal conditions or what others tell you or scriptures, suttas, Bibles, but you you know in a direct way. So it's, it's like that's an en- enlightening, it, it wake, awake, aware, knowing, seeing for you know budgetang to be experienced individually by the wise. It's no longer, uh, I think, and, and, and uh, the teacher says, the teacher told me. It's, a, it's, you know, it's a insight, it's jnana, what they call jnana dasana in Pali. It's a, a knowing and understanding that isn't based on grasping ideas, concepts, or beliefs. So in this way, I encourage you to, to uh, keep, to, to reflect on what I've been saying, not to believe it, but to, it's an encouragement to, to, uh, to help you to, to have more confidence in your own awareness of life. And not to be afraid of, of your you know, what might happen or, or being endlessly caught up in, in believing what you're thinking and your critical mind, but seeing it, observing, learning from it, that it is a condition that you can observe. And if you can observe it as a condition without judging it, then it's not a self, it is a habit, you know, a way of thinking, uh, attitude that you see now in terms of Dhamma rather than uh, believing in it or suppressing it. So I offer this for your reflection.
The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. <coughs> the teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples, who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha.